This morning, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 11, as we continue our study through uh, the books of 1 and 2 Samuel, Lessons from the Kingdom for Today is our, our series title. But this morning's message is, uh, is titled, The Moment of Truth. I'm told that this phrase actually has its origins in Spanish bullfighting. It's that point in which the matador makes his final lunge with the sword against the bull. El momento de la verdad. It's that, it's that last thrust. Um, you might say it's the, it's the culmination or crescendo of a fight. It's, it's used in, in lots of scenarios to speak to that time in which a thing is tested, the moment of truth. It's the crossroads that determines whether someone or something will succeed or fail. Chapter 11 is King Saul's moment of truth. Well, I mean, it's his first. There'll be others. But this is when he's called on to lead. Uh, and the people learn to trust him. It's, it's definitely a turning point. Leading is not easy. Uh, it, it isn't an easy task in any field or discipline. A police sergeant was relating a story about a class of new recruits, and he shared that all morning an instructor on his staff had been explaining leadership to his students in the police academy. Calling a trainee to the front of the class, he handed him a piece of paper on which was written, you are in charge. Get everyone out of the room without causing a panic. That was the task. And the rec recruit, he was just confused, befuddled, at a loss for words, and he just returned to his seat. The second man summoned, tried, everybody get outside now, and nobody moved. A third man glanced at the instructions, smiled, and said, all right, men, break for lunch. And the room immediately emptied in seconds. Understanding motivation is certainly important in leadership. Tom Landry, famous for his 29 years of leading the, uh, the Dallas Cowboys, his highly successful uh, run, he once said, leadership is a matter of having people look at you and gain confidence seeing how you react. How do we react in the moment of truths in our lives? How do we respond when the heat is on? A, a leader, or in the case of Saul, a would-be leader's reaction to a crisis determines whether or not people will follow. And even more specifically, it, it speaks to whether or not a man or a woman are called to leadership. I've heard it said before that one way to determine whether or not you're called to lead is to look around and see if anyone's following. Saul's been anointed king of Israel, but so far there's been nothing for him to do and no throne to occupy. So he's gone back to work at his family farm. But that's about to change. Saul's going to have an opportunity to step into this role of being king. A crisis is befalling the nation, and this will be his time to act, his moment. Trials can be those uh, moments in our lives that, that make us or break us. Will we trust God or will we give up? Will we seek him or lean on our own understanding? Will we believe the, the worst possible outcome, give up, or have the faith to trust that God is causing and will cause all things to work together for good? 
that he is in control. Well, let's take a moment and pray before we look at the first three verses. Father, as we open your word, God, we pray that you would cause our hearts and minds to be open. Lord, we pray that you would anoint not only your word and its preaching, but our listening. God, that, that we would be able to receive what you would say today to us. God, that we would not be hearers only, but doers by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, our first point this morning in looking at verses 1 through 3 is let's make a deal. The moment of truth presents itself, we'll find, through an enemy's advance against one of Israel's territories and the negotiation that follows. Verse 1, then Nahash the Ammonite came up and encamped against Jabesh-Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, make a covenant with us and we will serve you. That was easy. Verse 2, and Nahash the Ammonite answered, on this condition I will make a covenant with you, that I may put out all your right eyes and bring reproach on all Israel. Oh, verse 3, then the elders of Jabesh said to him, hold off for seven days. Maybe we were a little hasty there, that we may send messengers to all the territory of Israel, and then if there is no one to save us, we will come out to you. Um, yeah, obviously, they, once they heard the terms of the agreement, they determined, uh, let's, let's see what our options are here. Let's try to get a little help. Nahash the Ammonite, he was uh, a leader of these nomadic peoples who lived in the area, the Ammonites. Nahash, it means serpent or snake, so that's kind of a good visual for him. He's, he's our bad guy here. Jabesh Gilead is an area east of the Jordan River. It would be modern-day Jordan today. You might remember when Joshua led the children of Israel into the promised land, there were three tribes that said, no, actually, this land here east of the Jordan, it's, it's suitable for, it's actually pasture land, and, and we primarily have flocks and herds, and so we'd like to stay here. And the Lord was okay with that so long as they fought with their brethren until the majority of the land was settled, which they did, but it was Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And so that was this, or within this area called Jabesh Gilead. They were the Gileadites. So how did the children of Israel react to Nahash's threat? What did they do? Well, we read it in verse 1. All the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, make a covenant with us and we will serve you. I think it's fair to say the people panicked. Um, they took what they thought would be the easiest way the easiest way out. Let's avoid a fight, the path of least resistance. We do that sometimes when we face opposition. But what price would be paid? What would be the cost to the inhabitants of Gilead? On this condition, Nahash said, I will make a covenant with you that you, you may put out all your right eyes and bring reproach on all Israel. And their reaction? On second thought, hold up just a minute. Uh, maybe we were a little bit hasty. Can we get a minute to think about this? They wanted to have time to ask for help. So they sent messengers throughout all of Israel. And uh, they said, if there's no one to save us, then we'll come out to you. They basically said, look, if, if we have no other options, then we'll see you soon, in a week. Um, Nahash agrees, which is kind of funny because you're thinking, well, he's ready to fight them. He's brought his armies up against them. Why didn't he just say, I'm not giving you time to get help? A couple possibilities. We might imagine that maybe he wasn't quite ready for battle yet. Maybe he assumed they were just going to surrender. Um, 
Maybe he was convinced that no help was coming anyway because a king was new for Israel. They, they were just sort of this people that dwelt together and he thought nobody's coming. Or maybe he liked the idea of the press that was going out. Messengers traveling across the land talking about big bag Nahash the Ammonite who was going to attack Jabesh Gilead and put out everybody's eyes. We, we don't know for sure, but he let word go. And obviously the Ammonites' plan it was to cripple Israel, by blinding them, imagine this, for the majority who would be right-handed, you fight with your sword with your right hand. So I can't see really my, where my sword's going. I've lost depth perception in my left eye, and generally you hold your shield with your left hand. So you can't see hardly anything. You're basically useless in battle. To agree to this would, would only make sense if you're just absolutely desperate. Um, uh, and, and to agree too quickly, though, would be, would be foolish. How do you and I respond, though, when Satan attacks us, when he tempts us, when he uh, challenges us, when there's some circumstance that, that brings fear to our hearts? I think sometimes we give in too quickly, don't we? That's pretty fair to say. We give in too quickly to temptation, to attack, to discouragement, to fear, to threats of different kinds, when in fact God has given us weapons. We have backup. We have it in the form of the armor of God, right? And we have it in the form of our brothers and sisters, each other. We have it in the word of God and in prayer. Three things, and I have three Fs to help us remember. I'm calling them firearms, friends, and faculty. And they, they're, they're not perfect Fs, but um, alliteration is helpful. And I, I, I don't know, I thought they might stick in our brains because they're a little different. But first of all, firearms. No, God hasn't literally given you a gun unless God provided a gun and you have it and you're thankful for it. But we're talking about something spiritual here, okay? Firearms or weapons. God's given us weapons, all right? Ephesians 6.10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. When's the last time that Satan came, attacked, tempted you, or otherwise assailed you, and you actually went back to Ephesians chapter 6 and walked through the armor of God, prayerfully taking up that armor? In Christ, we have Weapons, an armory at our disposal, both defensive and offensive. Reading through Ephesians 6, 10 through 18 and praying through the armor of God, it's a powerful way to, to start your day. I wonder how many of us are in the habit of doing that. I do from time to time. Sometimes I'll pray it for my, my family member, for friends, for those in the body of Christ. Lord, that their feet would be shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. I did this for some of you this morning. That I, would, that I would have the belt of truth about my life, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, that I would take up the shield of faith, the sword of the spirit, that I would pray. Praying that for yourself and for others and walking through that as you're under attack. We've been given firearms, weapons. We have friends, support. Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. In the body of Christ, we have each other. If we'll avail ourselves of that help and if we'll respond and offer that help to our brothers and sisters, we need to lean on one another and, and be willing to pray for and, and encourage each other in the battle, whether it's in the form of sending a text 
that says help. Would you pray for me right now? Picking up the phone, sometimes even driving over to somebody's house and knocking on the door and saying, I'm not doing well right now. I am. Um, <laughs> okay, I'll just cut to the chase. When you're struggling, you should call for help, all right? James 5 says, if anyone's sick, don't call for the elders of the church because they all have prophetic gifts and they know that you need help and they'll just come to you. It doesn't say that. It says if you're, if you're sick, call. And in the old days, it was probably send somebody or send a message or a note. Today, it's pick up your phone. It's, it's dial the number and say, hey, would you come and pray with me? Pray for me. Finally, faculty. And I, I don't mean like a, a staff at a school. We're talking about the mind. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So much warfare takes place in our minds the battlefield of our thought life. And it's, it's there that we're to wrestle the lies of the enemy down in favor of the truth of God's word. I visualize it that way sometimes. I, I imagine um, a physical fight in my mind with things that I know are not true, whether it's fear of something that hasn't happened yet and is not necessarily inevitable or, or something that is assailing God's truth in my life, my identity in Christ, bringing up the promises of God in, in, my, in my head and favoring that over the lies. That's why memorizing Scripture is so healthy. I was listening to the radio this past week to K-Wave, and there was someone was teaching, I don't know who it was, and she shared about a, a ministry that where you can actually get, I forget what it's called now, but you can actually get um, a monthly subscription to temporary tattoos. I love this because, you know, I talk about sometimes how we need to tattoo God's word on our body. Well, it's, they send you a temporary tattoo, and it's for the purpose of memorizing scripture. So you put it somewhere where you're going to look at it and see it, and they use alliteration, so it's, it's not the whole verse, but just little parts of it. And, and anyway memorizing God's word, that our minds would be renewed, and that that would challenge the lies of the enemy. It's the sword of the Spirit. I challenge you, this week when the enemy comes at you the way he is in the habit of doing, take up the armor of God and lean into the, the weapons, the resources that God has given us. Don't surrender now, from this very serious situation, the people's plea to their enemy for time to get help, we swing back over to Saul the king. Our next point, anger becomes action. Verse 4, so the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and told the news and the hearing of the people, and all the people lifted up their voices and wept. In that culture, of course, loud, tumultuous wailing was customary and, and still is true in the region today. And needless to say, Paul, or rather, excuse me, Saul could hear the commotion coming as, as news maybe reached the outskirts of town and then it sort of rolled through like thunder to where he was. Verse 5, now there was Saul coming behind the herd from the field. And Saul said, what troubles the people that they weep? 
and they told him the words of the men of Jabesh. Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard this news, and his anger was greatly aroused. So he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hands of messengers, saying, whoever does not go with Saul and Samuel to battle, so it shall be done to his oxen. And the fear of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out with one consent. So the people of Jabesh-Gilead, they, they bring word to Saul's hometown, and, and panic spreads. The people are freaked out. What are we going to do with this enemy? How are we going to fight this battle? We're all going to lose our right eye. They, they know this is a serious problem, and, and a formidable enemy. They are afraid. These people, they're kind of giving up before the fight has begun. So where's the king? Well, Remember, after he'd been chosen by Lot and and appointed king before the people, he was chosen by the Spirit of God, he was found by Lot, that was uh, last week, but he basically went home after that, which sounds funny to us, but there was no palace um, and really no throne for the kingdom to coalesce around. This was all new. This, This concept of having a king was in its infancy. And honestly, Saul's Return to the farm, it may well be evidence of the right perspective in his heart, at least for now. It, it may be that he figured if he was to be king, it would be, uh, if the Lord wanted more from him or for him, he would make that clear and open the door, as we say. Well, this crisis is going to serve for that very purpose. This will be Saul's moment of truth. What we're seeing is the birth of Israel's new king. He's been anointed, he's been empowered, gifted with this this mantle of authority to think and act beyond the mentality of a mere shepherd. But he's still living and working on the farm. Verse 5, now there was Saul coming behind the herd from the field and said, what troubles the people that they weep? And so the people fill him in. Well, this is what we're upset about. It's been said that leaders aren't born, they're made. And very often that making takes place in the furnace. It's there that great leaders are forged through trials. Verse 6, then the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard this news and his anger was greatly aroused. There was a, a righteous indignation. Godly anger that results in godly action. Saul wasn't angry because he'd been, you know, personally offended or hurt. Uh, This wasn't about his uh, pride or power. It was a desire to see God work. And it came about because the Spirit of God came upon him. The Bible speaks to this and gives us some helpful guidelines in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Most of us can get the other part right. We can get angry. I got that covered. All right. Praise the Lord. I did my Bible verse. Well, it says don't sin after that. And do not let the sun go down on your wrath. That's a tough one. Not going to bed angry. Nor give place to the devil That's a place where he can enter into our lives and influence us. 
through unresolved anger, an anger that's given way to sin. Now, I don't believe that our lives should be characterized by anger. Some of you might, well, you know, I'm just righteously indignant. That's just who I am. And you're just angry all the time. And everybody just stay out of my way. But if we're serving the Lord, if we love him, we're going to be angry at times. What we have to be careful of is distinguishing between ourselves and the Spirit of God and being sure not to sin or give place to the devil. And we're not called to be angry people. Sadly, this this characterizes, though, much of Saul's later years, some of you know, which were not godly at all. But what does Saul do? Verse 7, so he took a yoke of oxen, two oxen that were yoked, connected together with that wooden piece that bound them together by the neck, and and, uh, through it they would pull a plow and be worked in the field by the farmer. He took these two oxen and he cut them in pieces. He, he butchers them and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hands of messengers saying, whatever does not, excuse me, whoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel to battle, so it shall be done to his oxen. Wow, Saul's reaction is extreme, isn't it? But he wants to make a point. There's a lot on the line here. The Ammonites would not stop at Jabesh-Gilead. This, and this, this does have to stop right here, Saul recognizes. If we don't make our stand here, if we don't push them back, they're going to keep moving in deeper and deeper to our territory and to the land that God has given us. Now notice what the king said to the people. Whoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel into battle. Saul is operating as and sees himself as being in cooperation with the prophet, and he was. They're a team at this point. Saul, he is seeking and he's serving the Lord. The Holy Spirit uh, came upon him. He became righteously indignant. He saw what was on the line. He teamed up with the prophet, and he said, we've got to rally the people and come against this enemy. How would the people respond to this message? <laughs> these, these weren't exactly evites or text notifications, you know, that popped up on there, you know, bing, you know, oh, look at this, we have a problem. No, uh, all of a sudden, a bloody lump of meat was, was delivered to a town, and, and they were told, if you want this to happen to you, stay home. Whoa. It was a call to battle. And the fear of the Lord, verse 7 says, fell on the people And they came out with one consent. No longer, they they weren't like Jabesh Gilead wanting to surrender, afraid of the enemy. They feared the Lord, which was a, a reverential respect and awe for the power of God that drove them to battle. They said, man, our God is great. And, and we serve and trust and we're following him. He's going to give us the victory. He will go before us. Saul is hardcore. He's not messing around. So why this graphic and violent display? Why not a nice but serious speech? I mean, we could have sent a messenger around. Uh, Samuel or Saul could have, you know, told the people, you know, hey, this was God's land given to us. Uh, We need to defend it. The visual described that this was nothing compared to to what the Ammonites would do if Israel failed to take a stand 
as these oxen were divided and cut into pieces, so too would Israel be. They needed to understand their enemy and what was on the line should they fail. Do you and I understand what's at stake when we fail? I know we don't when we've chosen to sin. I've, I've had too many conversations over the last couple of weeks of that very thing where I just want to grab a hold of somebody and say, do you understand what you're doing? People that have already crossed the line. I'm not saying that it's over for them, but I'm saying they've already contemplated the consequences and, and they're not concerned or not concerned enough. The damage and the hurt and the pain that we bring to ourselves, to our loved ones, to the body of Christ, to the cause of Christ. Are we taking sin lightly? Are we underestimating our adversary and the effects of his power and influence? We're warned by Peter, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. We need to be aware that we have an enemy. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion. We, we, we need to start our day and end our day and conduct ourselves through our day with the realization that, that, that we have a real enemy who is focused on our failure and our destruction. We need to be aware of that. We need to fight and not give in to him, resist him steadfast in the faith. James says if we resist the devil, he has to flee from us. We need to understand that we are not alone. Too many followers of Jesus give up because they feel isolated, because they're convinced that their circumstances are, are exceptional. You don't understand what I'm going through. I'm sure I don't understand, but trust me, the Lord does, and I promise you, you're not the only one. Knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Paul tells us there, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God will provide a way of escape. The question is, will we take the way of escape? Will we avail ourselves of the weapons, of the resources the defenses that God has given us. Too often we fail because we don't or we won't. That's not to say that our pain and struggle isn't unique, that it isn't painful, that it isn't difficult. But the reality is it's something that God has faithfully walked his people through before. And it's something that others are struggling against and, and prevailing through by faith. Victory is possible. That's what scripture promises us. The fight is coming. We've got to take it seriously and be prepared. Keeping in mind Jesus' parable of the sower and the seed, least we become those who, who are represented by the, the seed that fell among thorns or in shallow ground. 
that when trials come or the worries and cares and concerns of this life, God's work gets choked out. We, we, we want to preserve in our lives good soil so that God's work lasts and goes deep in our lives. So with the people rallied to fight, they gathered as one army ready to confront the enemy. Help is on the way, is our third point. Verse 8, when he numbered them in Bezek, the children of Israel were 300,000. This is some miles across from Jabesh-Gilead, directly west across the Jordan River, but in the territory of, uh, of Israel, not over on the other side. The other side was the territory of Israel too, but... Um, west of the Jordan. When he numbered them in Bezek, the children of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah, 30,000. Remember, Judah represented that smaller southern portion. And they said, verse 9, to the messengers who came, thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have help. Then the messengers came and reported it to the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. You bet they were glad. They're all, you know, trying to figure out life with one eye, and, and what's this going to be? And is anybody going to come? There was no indication help was coming. They had no idea if, if, the, if the, the call for help was falling flat or if people were going to come. I can't help but think that the beacons are lit. You know, that's where my mind goes. Sorry. Anyway, therefore... The men of Jabesh said to uh, Nahash, tomorrow we will come out to meet you and you may do with us whatever seems good to you. Verse 11, so it was on the next day that Saul put the people in three companies and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and killed Ammonites until the heat of the day. And it happened that those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. That's a pretty thorough routing of the enemy. Saul began the battle, we read, in the morning watch. That's actually from 2 to 6 in the morning. So it was, it was dark when he attacked the enemy. This was a surprise attack. And this should remind us of another battle, shouldn't it? Dividing the company into three and attacking by night. Who does that remind us of, anybody? Oh, my gosh. The Book of Judges. Fleece, there it was, Gideon, I heard that. Yes, it should remind us of Gideon. And some people think in reading this that actually Saul is putting his knowledge of the Old Testament to work here. Maybe the Holy Spirit inspired him and said, fight like Gideon, and he did. He divided his army into three camps, surrounded the, if I said the uh, Gileadites, I meant the Ammonites, um, surrounded them and then came at them in night, which I'm sure was confusing for them and, and threw them off balance. Uh, needless to say, the, the enemy was uh, thoroughly defeated Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have help. I love that response. The messenger that was running, I'm sure, ahead of the, the, uh, the armies to get that message out as quickly as possible to the, to the men and women of Jabesh Gilead. Help is, is coming. You shall have help. One day we'll be there. That's what you want to hear when, when you're in trouble, isn't it? <laughs> When, when you call AAA, right, the car broke down on the side of the road or, or the tire's flat, you're out of gas, what you want to hear, I, it, I don't really like the little text updates. I, I, 
Anyway, um, <laughs> I want to hear a person say, we'll be there, and not, and not in an hour. I love it when you catch it just right, and it's, it's a half hour, you know, or, or 20 minutes. Or they show up early before you even were anticipating. Or maybe you're struggling. Things are just not going, going well, and, and prayer's good, but you're hoping for somebody. And they, the friend says to you, you know what, let's, let's kick off now. I'm, I'm on my way over. Let's, let's get together. Let's talk about this. Let's pray. Hang in there. We're coming. That's, that's the heart that we need to have for one another, to have each other's backs in the body of Christ. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 17. A friend loves at all times, and a brother, a sister, is born for adversity. We need to be born for adversity for one another in our relationships, in our friendships, in our, our, our marriages. Uh, personally, I have been helped through the most difficult challenges I've faced in life by my wife, by our commitment to each other, knowing she's by my side, for better or for worse, for, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, forsaking all others, I pledge you my love, right? How quickly we forget that. And... and we know of those friends for whom that commitment, suddenly when, when those very things arose, not the positive, but the negative, I said for better or for worse, but I, I didn't know there was going to be this much worse. And I said for richer or poor, but I kind of married you because I thought we would be richer. And in sickness and in health, but, but man, you're, you're sick all the time. And, and we, we kind of start forsaking all others, but you know what? The others are looking a little better than you now. And <laughs> a brother is born for adversity. We need a renewed sense of that kind of commitment, not giving up when it gets hard, because, because that's what we signed up for. Life is hard. We press through to the blessing. We fight together. How many of us know that it's it's by the road of trials. It's through the fiery furnace that we experience the best things in life. When my oldest was in town a few weeks back, I took the opportunity to go on a few hikes, and one of them was to go up uh, Dread Hill. Some of you guys saw that picture uh, in Whiting Ranch. And, and it, I mean, it's aptly named if you've been up that hill. It's like you're going up, you know, dreading it the whole way and thinking, like, why am I doing this? I'm just going to, you know, die of a heart attack someday. Anyway, so I might as well just, you know, eat, drink, and be merry. Even. But, uh, but I'm like, no, no, I want to do this. I want to see the beautiful view, and I want to be healthy. And... But you have to endure the difficulty to experience the blessing. And, and the enemy lies to us and says, no, 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 just go back down, uh, give up, I'll provide something uh, even better. No, he won't. God's best is experienced through difficulty. History records that when Julius Caesar landed on the shores of Britain with his Roman legions on August the 26th in 55 BC, that he took a bold and decisive step to ensure the success of his military venture, ordering his men to march to the edge of the cliffs of Dover, those famous white cliffs. He commanded them to look down on the water below. And to their amazement, they saw every ship in which they had crossed the channel engulfed in flames. 
Caesar had deliberately cut off any possibility of retreat. Now that his soldiers were unable to return to the continent, there was nothing left for them to do but to advance and conquer, and that is exactly what they did. We need that kind of commitment to one another in the body of Christ today. We need that, that burning the ship's mentality that has eliminated the back door. I've told so many couples we need to divorce the word divorce from our vocabulary. It shouldn't even be a thought or a consideration. We, we need to be a people who are pressing into the Lord for help rather than being tempted to give up. And for those of you that have experienced divorce, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Scripture, this isn't a, a moment for condemnation for you, but a word for those that are married that need to persevere. I'm fully aware that when your partner gives up on you and, and leaves you in the Lord, when circumstances are out of your control, those are, those are not things that we carry condemnation or guilt or shame for. Um, we continue to persevere with the Lord and with others. So I, I hope I've clarified that if I caused any confusion. Now, knowing they had help, the people of Jabesh gave Nahash and the Ammonites their answer. Tomorrow we will come out to you and you may do with us whatever seems good to you. And it, and it may be that the Gileadites were actually trying to show, uh, excuse me, to throw Nahash off by, by giving what might possibly have been a false surrender. Like they said to him, okay, we've had our seven days. Uh, we'll see you tomorrow. They didn't say, obviously, the armies are coming. They just said, mm-hmm, we'll be out there like we said. And, and maybe that gives him this, you know, false sense of security or thinking they were helpless. We're not sure, but... Um, we have one last test, though, for Saul, our final point, the right focus. Verse 12, then the people said to Samuel, who is he who said, after this great victory, the Ammonites are defeated, they're scattered, only one or two left by themselves, scrambling over the hills. Now they're thinking back to before when Saul was first recognized as king. Who is he who said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. Remember that at the end of chapter 10? They were the ones who, who scoffed and wouldn't follow Saul's leadership. They'd, they were rebels, we read, who said, how can this man save us? So they despised him, and they brought him no presents. Can you believe that? <laughs> they took their little gifts and marched home, you know? Uh. How would Saul respond to that? Would he be the king or the shepherd? Would he, would he be a greater man or a lower man? When the people around him are saying, this is, our, this is the time to pay them back. Those that were, were causing division and problems in the kingdom, who didn't believe in you, who mocked you, really. Would he lean into the new mantle that he'd been given by God, into the work that God was doing in him by the Holy Spirit? What would he say? It would have been very tempting to take vengeance, wouldn't it? It's like, well, it wasn't even my idea, but <laughs> praise the Lord. That sounds like the Holy Spirit is again falling, and I've got this righteous indignation. Yes, bring them up, and let's, let's, let's divide them up and send them through. No, I'm just kidding. We're not going not gonna to do the oxen thing again. Anyway, it would have been very tempting. Saul knew better, though. His focus was on the Lord, not on petty men uh, who, who were only thinking of themselves. He wouldn't be pulled down to their level, but instead chose to set his eyes on what God was doing. 
And there's a lot of freedom in that. And I, I think it's part of what Joseph discovered through his trials. Finally telling his brothers when they'd feared he'd try to get even with them for all the, the terrible uh, atrocities that they'd committed against him. We read in Genesis 50, verse 20, he says to them, but as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Verse 13, but Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. Saul's choice was a sign of confidence in the Lord and maturity. Trust in God's control over his life. He made the choice to be a peacemaker, to choose to focus on all that God had done rather than the mistakes or the sins of others. Verses 14 and 15, Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they made sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Peace offerings were those where a portion was offered to the Lord, and then the people would consume a portion. So this was really a great festival of worship before God. The people, they followed Samuel as he led them to formally install Saul as king in Gilgal. That's down south of where we've been, and it's actually near Jericho. No more to return home to the pastures. Saul will now lead the nation from this point forward. He's met his moment of truth, and, and he'll now be king. The victory, it's gained for Saul the, the, the gravitas, the street cred that he needed to be able to do this job. And now, the problem, though, we'll see soon with Saul is that he allowed his success to inflate his ego and his pride. And I'm, I'm giving us a sneak peek, as I have before, of, of what's coming. But that would become his downfall and his undoing. And that's the real test. Not how we do with just one battle, but how we continue and how we finish. Andrew Bonar, the great 19th century Scottish pastor, wrote, we must be as watchful after the victory as before the battle. S.I. McMillan, in his book, None of These Diseases, tells a story of a young woman who wanted to go to college, but whose heart sank when she read the question on the application. He writes, are you a leader? <laughs> Being both honest and conscientious, she wrote, no, and returned the application expecting the worst. To her surprise, she received this letter from the college. Dear applicant, a study of the application forms reveals that this year our college will have 1,452 new leaders. We are accepting you because we feel it is imperative that they have at least one follower. The humility and the willingness to follow is a necessary quality for leadership. One who can't follow can't lead. While Saul's leadership began strong, it, it will end terribly. 
What he needed was this an, an ongoing moment of truth in his life. That's what you and I need. To remember that, that, that the successes are from the Lord and not our own. And Jesus modeled this for us and asked that we remember it. John 13, verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper, laid his garments aside, took a towel, girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. That's really the only picture of leadership that you and I need. He washed the feet of his disciples. He made himself a servant. While often we're looking for some high-profile battle as our moment of truth, more often it comes to us in the form of feet that need washing. May we not miss those moments that God intends for our shaping and our growing to make us into the leaders that he's calling us to be, men and women who lead like Jesus. Why don't you stand with me and we'll, we'll pray. Father, we pray that you would mold and shape our hearts. God, in those places where we've allowed ourselves to grow hard, God, where we've allowed pride to creep in, leaning on our own understanding, we want to repent of that. Lord, maybe, maybe we, we've had anger in our lives, but it's, it's not an anger that leads to a godly response. Maybe we've reacted to the enemy or trials in fear instead of faith. There's, there's lots of ways this message might have touched our hearts right now. We want a purpose to say yes to you. God, that in, that in this moment, we would respond to your truth. And that hereafter, Lord, that our hearts desire that in, in actual fact we would be surrendering to you moment by moment, saying yes to you and no to ourselves, humbling ourselves, girding ourselves as servants. Jesus, that we might have hearts like yours, that we might see the opportunities that you put before us, that, Lord, we might stand with one another, that we might resist the enemy in the evil day. God, that you would use us, that you would equip us, to take the gospel, Lord, to the world around us. We ask that in Jesus' name, amen.